that is ready to go steady by the Charmettes. And um, this is podcast number 367, entitled Summer of 42. And it boils down to a further trajectory, a step into the instantiation or embodiment of the confidence that we are truly loved in a one-way manner by God, and yet to experience this or to really fathom it emotionally, we have to consistently go into ourselves and ask ourselves, how have we personally known this? How have we felt this? How do we, how do we connect with the real person? I hear uh, many sermons today which state this message, often under the very uh, uh, marvelous influence of Mockingbird Ministries, but there is still a tendency for the preacher to feel that he or she, at the very end of it, has to root it theologically, has to refer very specifically to the action of Jesus Christ on the cross as a one full, perfect, sufficient sacrifice, satisfaction, and oblation for the sins of the whole world, to quote the prayer book, and that it is not really a valid sermon unless it has been stated at the end in theologically impeccable language, and that is a mistake. You, 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 you don't. But it does. It tends to. The preacher may have gotten through with some good illustrations of what one-way love really means, and then again, uh, he or she. Um, kind of blows it away by throwing a bunch of masonry on top of it, you know, like a building that's been hit in the Gaza Strip by a bomb just collapsing or a a Turkish uh, village wiped out by an earthquake. The stones suddenly go, and you're inundated by a huge weight of language. My point is not to say I disagree with the language. I almost always agree completely with the language on its own terms. But it immediately makes into a head trip uh, a uh, message which can only really be received ultimately as a... um, as a as an emotional reality, and then it really sticks. Then it really has the power to to create the very thing which the law is unable to engender, to create the very love and the expressions of love that come naturally when one is loved from outside oneself spontaneously, and you might say irrationally. And I saw this um, recently. I was teaching a class um, on the subject of uh, of. Uh, one-way love, and I concluded the class by talking about the power in a human uh, biography of rejection versus the power of of uh, belovedness, uh, especially acceptance, but in the sense of the romantic sense, uh, the power that a moment of rejection can have, uh, can darken and be a cloud over your entire life from the moment it happens to the moment you die, unless it is resolved in some important and really decisive manner, or the power of a moment of profound belovedness that is undeserved and yet catches you off guard in a moment of deep and great distress and need. And the decisive element, it usually happens, although not always, but it usually happens in a situation of romantic love, at least for guys. It does with women also, but I'm, I, I see it so dramatically in... Um, Uh, men who go to pieces, young men especially, when they're rejected in a romantic relationship, and men who find total fresh confidence and optimism uh, when they are loved in a romantic relationship. I want to talk a little bit about that today. 
Now, I saw this um, uh, in the eyes. I was speaking to this class, and they were following me very wonderfully, and I have a history with many of the people there, but even those <coughs> who were... Uh, someone came up afterwards who I've never met before in my life who had never heard me, who was just uh, really beside herself with the application of what I was saying about acceptance and rejection, especially in romantic relationships, which is simply the... the uh, the locus of uh, God's work in us, the phosphorus point at the extremist that can be a decisive turning point in a person's life. And I saw this person whom I'd never met just dissolve in front of me. And I was just so struck by uh, what I was seeing in her and feeling from her and the notes that she'd taken of what I was trying to say. So I realized again how vital this uh, message is. It is not in any way uh, a tilt against the theology of grace as we find it in the Reformation and in Luther especially and in the great followers of Luther and certainly in the prayer book service of Holy Communion and confession and the comfortable words. But it is uh, the, the church mistakes itself when it uh, doesn't realize how em- the way in is through an emotional contact with the heart of your experience of rejection uh, and uh, acceptance. And what um, spurred the cast, I'm going to say what spurred the cast, and then I'm going to, which we'll hear at the very end as a piece of music, and then I'll, uh, I'll give two examples uh, of what this uh, means in a person's life. And I really want, I, as I spoke to this crowd of people, this lovely group of people, I, when I got to the final point, when I said, you know, something happened, I'm not talking about you doing it to somebody else, I said to my hearers. I'm talking to my hearers. I said, I'm talking about when it happened to you. And then a look, I could just tell everybody was going, <gasps> you know, remember the time when someone loved you, especially in a relationship, i.e. only in a relationship, not necessarily romantic. It could have been a teacher, it could have been a grandfather, it could have been a, um, a friend, it could have been especially a coach, especially a teacher or a coach, but most commonly the, the greatest damage was done by a romantic or uh, rejection, could go back to a mother's and a father's rejection of a child. Um, that, that was the deepest subliminally um, undying scar uh, that has kept you from your true happiness and satisfaction and even joy and optimism throughout your entire life, or on the other hand, an acceptance. So I'm going to give um, uh, an example uh, uh, from how why, why this podcast came about, and then two examples, uh, and see what you think, see if you relate. Now, the... Um, the uh, the reason this all started is, for some reason, I, I uh, in Jim Reed's bookstore I saw a copy of Summer of Forty Two by a, um, a writer named Rauscher R A U C H E R and I'd never read the novel which uh, the movie of Summer of Forty Two from the summer of nineteen seventy one which we all saw was based the novel actually was a novelization of the movie it did not precede the script it followed the success of the movie but it's from nineteen seventy one and I read the last part of it, because as you remember in the summer of 42, a young man who with some very uh, rather lewd young associates, he's about 15, maybe 16, he falls in love with an absolutely unapproachable married lady who's about six or seven or eight years older than he and he's a like I said a sort of 11th grader in high school and he falls in love with her on Nantucket 
and she doesn't know about it, but he, he's very sweet to her. He carries her groceries home, a huge amount of groceries, and he's not lurid and lewd and yucky like his friends. He actually sort of falls for her in a, in a selfless way, and he does all these lovely things for her when her husband, who is a soldier uh, about to be going to the front in World War II, go to Europe, leaves. And uh, then he uh, is drawn to knock on her door late at night when he sees a light on, and he knows that he's drawn to her very strongly. And he discovers that she's just heard that her husband was killed in combat in, in flying a plane over France, and she is completely devastated. Then they end up through just the uh, irrationality and the forlornness and lostness and touchedness of the moment of uh, of uh, he spends the night with her and he's never done that before with anyone and uh, uh, she has just lost her husband and is completely overwhelmed in grief and yet somehow the serendipity the surprise of the moment leads him to this extraordinary development and then he leaves the next morning he she says you have to leave not meanly but it's time to go. This is out of order, as Simeon Zal would say. And he does leave, but, and then he comes back a little later and sees a message from her when she says very touching things to him. It's a little like the ending of Tea and Sympathy by John Anderson, but better. She speaks to him in this note. She knows uh, she'll never see him again, and he'll never see her again, and what happened between them is something they never want to talk about. And yet she has an understanding. She has a, a real um, sympathy and compassion and empathy for this young fellow whose life has changed forever. His life has changed forever by not only what happened, but the way her note is so absolutely powerfully kind and dear, non-condescending, and yet also realistic in the best sense of the word, and draws a line that is uh, is never to be crossed again, and yet will be with him forever. And he says, this is the decisive moment in my own life. And I saw that, uh, and I said to myself, golly, this is, this is what happens to people. This man's entire life, because he's telling the story 20 or 30 years later wearing Gucci loafers and gray slacks. I, I just, gosh, if that was written in 1971, that could have been me thinking that Gucci loafers without socks and corduroys and whatever else you would wear as an undergraduate was the absolute height of uh, appropriate haberdashery. I still sort of think that. But anyway, um, the uh, power of the story, and then I did remember the Michel Legrand score of the movie, which is undeniably one of the most touching and beautiful and evocative scores that uh, Legrand uh, ever produced, and I think he won the Oscar for it. I'll play a brief excerpt from it at the end of the podcast. But I thought to myself, my gosh, this is this is true. An event like that in a young man's life, it doesn't happen like that with most people. But something like that happened to you. Uh, not exactly that. That's, as I say, out of order. The, the whole situation is remarkable and unique. That's why it's a powerful movie, and it's very well done, except it's a little vulgar <clears throat> with the teenagers and they're together. But the boy surpasses that. He transcends all the vulgarity, and he learns what real love and compassion and even even connection is with another human being. It's extremely powerful, the ending of that movie, and uh, which I saw, again, to prepare for this. <clears throat> and the music... Now, um, but I'll bet that you can look back, whether you're 30 or 60 or 90 or even 
younger than 30, something happened in a relationship, uh, hopefully positive. Someone loved you, condescended, that's the wrong word because it has associations, but someone reached down and loved you and cared for you and reached out and maybe gave herself or himself to you in a really heartfelt way at a point of tremendous need and vulnerability and and really uh, absolutely despairing lostness in your own life, at least within yourself. And that made... All the differences, um, as uh, Robert Frost said, it has made all the difference. At the end of uh, the uh, two paths in the forest, the road less traveled. Now, the same would go with um, a rejection, a rejection of you personally, a rejection that was not about an ideology or some school of thought or a group of whom you were a part, but a personal rejection of Paul, of Mary, of Devon, of Alistair, of uh, Susan. A personal rejection of you personally could be the absolute decisive moment of your entire life. And I uh, know people, I know all sorts of wonderful friends who experienced not just, could have been a romantic rejection, it, it certainly may well have been, but it could also have been a being expelled from your school or being um, suddenly thrown out of a group that you thought really accepted you and were receiving a a boss who absolutely hated, as they say, hated your guts, to use the, the colloquial, and um, did you in uh, a sudden... Uh, radical um, intervening disappointment, uh, loss, uh, death of someone. That, But usually it's a, it's a personal attack, and that has such power. Let me give you two examples of acceptance, uh, and then I'm done. I want you to fill in the blanks about rejection. You'll, you'll know about that. You'll know about that. I know about that. I don't want to deal with that today, but I know about it, and I've, I've had it myself. But, um, and it's been decisive. But I want to talk about two other things. Go back and read Oliver Twist or see the David Lean 1946 or 47 um, uh, movie of it with uh, Alec Guinness and, uh, oh my gosh, wonderful actors and actresses and uh, John Mills and um, see it. And uh, you'll notice that the whole thing turns on a good action that a little boy of about 10 or 11 at the most uh, offers an escaped convict who is very who is guilty is going to be exported uh, deported for life to Australia because of a crime he committed he's guilty and he's being tracked down and a little boy for reasons that initially are out of fear and then later for some odd and completely unexpected and irrational way he protects this criminal in a way that is absolutely remarkable he he protects uh, a, a, a criminal uh, uh, at a very vital, crucial public moment and does not give way to saying something that would have made the man's um, uh, penalty far worse than it already is. And years later, he doesn't understand why he keeps getting this money. He keeps getting money, large amounts of money that completely change his life and make him into a gentleman from being kind of an orphaned, uh, kind of an orphan charge of his uncle and uh, aunt, as I remember it. Um, he is uh, suddenly turned into a gentleman because of these infusions of money from, and he's never told who, who they're from, never, ever, until he finally realizes that it's the convict who had 
um, been freed, uh, whatever it was, in Australia and made a great deal of money somehow, probably with sheep herding in a short period of time. A very smart man had made a lot of money in uh, Australia and had uh, made it possible for this money to be sent to little Pip. And Pip had suddenly come into this lifelong trust fund and annuity. And only at the very, very end does he realize who it came from. It came from the man he sheltered when he was 11 years old. And the man is dying named Magwitch. And Pip visits Magwitch and <clears throat> is so touched by it. But he says, why did you do it? Why have, why have you made this extraordinary gift, done this unbelievably altruistic thing in my behalf? And, and he just says this as he's dying. He says, Pip, you, 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 you cared for me when I was at my lowest point. You, you covered for me when I was my lowest point in my life. How could I not respond? It's a perfect example how um, one-way love produces the response of one-way love. I'll give you one other example, and then we're done, and we can listen to Michel Grand's enormously romantic. I, you may say it's sentimental. I think it's unbelievably evocative of the true nature of human life within ourselves. But um, years ago, I was uh, in... Uh, uh, in the Navy. I was in Naval Officer Candidate School in Newport, and I had a leave, and I had taken my leave for my weekend leave, which every other weekend I had, and I was um, on the Sunday night ready to go back, but I was in the middle of a get the first stages of a terrible breakup with someone, a really, really, really unpleasant, sad, um, really awful breakup with someone, and uh, I was uh, I was delayed uh, in getting on the Peter Pan bus to take me to back to Newport to be there in time for when I had to be back, and um, I was delayed because of this breakup, uh, some something conversation related to the breakup, and I suddenly realized I was in trouble, and I had agreed to meet someone else after before getting the Peter Pan bus. I had agreed that I would leave my lovely person who I had not left in time and have a quick cup of coffee with someone I hadn't seen for almost two years. I had known her a little bit long, long before. Well, actually more than a little bit, but no, a little bit. I had known her purely as a friend a long time before. Hadn't seen this person for two years. Uh, That person had been away and I'd been in a completely different life and that person had been far away. So we were going to have a cup of coffee, but I I was a little late and I had to get to to, to the bus and I realized I was in, in terrible shape and I suddenly realized that I was too late to get the bus and I was in really, really, I was going to be late. I wasn't going to get there till two hours after I was required to be back on base and I would be punished. I would lose my leave for the foreseeable future because of my not being back in time. So I um, called this person I hadn't seen with whom I was going to have coffee. And I said, I'm so sorry. I can't talk. I can't reach you. I'm, I've been unavoidably delayed and I've, I'm in a bad way and I've got to somehow um, uh, get a late bus and uh, get down there without batting an eye. And this person, again, whom I hadn't seen for a very long time and whom I was only going to have coffee while being totally engrossed in another situation, uh, this person, she said to me, oh, um, I can take you. What? You know, she had a car. Are you kidding? A car? Yes, I'll, t- I'll, I'll, I'll take you right now. And, and, and uh, I think I can probably get you there in time. I couldn't believe it. I said, really? I mean, uh, you barely know me at this time in my life. And and, and that's a bit, to me that was a huge thing to offer. You actually have your car, and you're going to drive me two hours to down there in time for me not to be punished. And and she said, "Oh no, I'd, I'd, I'd be happy to do that." So there she picked me up on Mount Auburn Street. I got in the car, and this person drove me all the way, and I got there about. 20 minutes to 9 when it was the absolute ending, but in time. And as I got out, I I thanked this person very much. And um, 
and uh, what I said in my heart was, thank you so much. Um, will you marry me? <laughs> I mean, I, I don't know if you ever had an experience like that. When you, you were so touched, you, you, in your heart, you wanted to say, thank you so much. Can I be with you forever? But I literally thought to myself, I wanted to say to her, thank you so much. Will you marry me? Um, of course, I didn't. I just thanked the person. But it made me respond in that degree. Now, the fact that the person uh, is now my wife and the fact that the person who gave me that completely unexpected little beau geste um, at that point in my life, unbelievable. Uh, there'd be no Mockingbird. There'd be no St. Matthew's Bedford current ministry. There'd be no uh, professor in Cambridge. There'd be no 50-year anniversary coming up had that not uh, a small, decisive point of acceptance. And that's all I wanted to say. Look back upon your own life. Can you look at a point when someone acted towards you that way in such a way? It could have even have been a kindly professor or an admissions officer or someone who treated you with absolute love uh, in your personal moment of distress. And uh, that res uh, created the response of loving belovedness created loving back to the whole world and that's the whole point of the gospel and I tell you that story with great love and now we hear a little bit of Summer of 42 by Michel Legrand.